Welcome to Smart Muslimer Podcast. Inshallah, if you find this podcast episode useful, please subscribe and tell your friends and family about Smart Muslimer. Also, good news, I have a newsletter and that's how we can stay in touch. To subscribe, please go to smartmuslimer.com. Details are also in the podcast notes. In the newsletter, I'll be sharing my book recommendations, productivity tips and online courses that I've created and also information about a new book that I'm writing called Smart Single Muslimer. Inshallah, it will help you to transform the way you approach love and relationships. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen, wa salatu wa salam wa ala sayyidil mursaleen wa ala alihi wa sahbi ajma'een. Rabbi shrah li sadri wa sirli amri wa hlul uqtatin min lisani yafqahu qawli. So this week the subject of hijab has come under the spotlight again. Seems to happen periodically. And the reason this time is that a famous Muslim YouTuber posted a video where she explained why she has decided to no longer wear the head covering, the khimar, also known as the hijab nowadays. Now initially, inshallah, in this episode, I want to look at the main reasons why there is so much confusion around the simple act of wearing the khimar. Now to help me resolve the confusion, I have Iman Abbasi as my guest. She wrote an article titled Hijab, Not My Body, Not My Choice on the website Traversing Tradition. Now, the, their mission, Traversing Tradition, is to critically examine how modern philosophies and ideologies shape our assumptions about the world. So philosophies like liberalism, feminism, and so how they're shaping our assumptions about the world and the, the nature of truth and morality and then what they do is critique these premises through a Muslim worldview. And now I just thought this is very similar to what we're doing with the Thinking Muslim website, which I'm, I'm part of. And um, so, yeah, so when I read this article, um, I really liked the really calm, dispassionate and um, uh, empathetic way in which she wrote the article. And she, it, she read some really thoughtful, provoking points, which I just knew that you guys that you would be interested in hearing from her. So, uh, alhamdulillah, she is my guest today. Assalamu alaikum, Iman, and welcome to a Muslim Mum podcast. Wa alaikum assalam, jazakallah khair for having me. Alhamdulillah. Um, so, the, the title of your piece, it was quite unusual. You know, um, I've heard the slogan, my body, my choice before, but the phrase, not my body, not my choice, that's something you don't hear very often. So, could you, inshallah, explain why did you write this piece? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think me, like many other Muslim girls, you know, when we were growing up, um, there were very few public hijabis uh, that existed in the public consciousness who could make hijab really relevant to us um, and demonstrate different techniques of wrapping it, how to pin it, um, how to wear it to different occasions. Um, and a lot of us learned a lot from them. Um, but increasingly over the past few years, what we're noticing is that many of these bloggers or influencers have begun to 
um, you know, take off their hijabs. And some of the rhetoric that they cite in doing so um, is that now it's important for them to speak their own truth um, and whatever they wear on their bodies is their own choice, right? So they echo this um, slogan of my body, my choice. And what mm -hmm. I've observed is that definitely over the past few months, particularly um, Muslim women, not just young ones, are beginning to get confused by these type of slogans, right? Is um, what does it mean for something to be your body? Uh, and what does it mean to make your own choices in this way? Um, and so I thought it was really important to kind of address this topic. Uh, mm -hmm. And I did so through this article that I wrote for Traversing Tradition, um, which is a publication that um, some of my friends and I started. And it really attempts to be this bridge between um, you know, just lame men who want to learn more about Islam and the ulama who might not be, you know, following these influencers and might not have their pulse on these day-to-day -day issues that we're facing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really like the fact that in a website traversing tradition that um, you do, you critique, you know, ideas through a Muslim worldview that looking at ideas and then seeing, okay, the modern philosophies that we are being asked to adopt that you don't just accept it, that you're, it, you're doing a rational critique of it and, and judging, does it, um, is it in line with Islam or not? And I, that's what I really liked about, you know, your website. I did read a couple of other articles as well. Um, so now going back to yours in particular, so you mentioned the word confusion. And I do think nowadays that if, um, let's say um, a, a sister, she wants to start to Coven, she wants to find out is hijab an obligation, you know, how, and then how should I wear it? I think going online is a very confusing place for us, for Muslim women now, because um, we are being told, um, you know, uh, uh, things that contradict what has always been known in Islam. And when I say that, I mean, you know, traditional Islamic scholarship has always categorically mentioned that you know wearing the khimar is um, an obligation and then the outer garment jilbab as well but what you now have is um, people like um, for example Mona El Tahawi in her book Headscarves and Hymens she um, it's interesting that she uh, spoke about how she used to wear hijab and then how she unveiled and the people she cites are um, for example Leila Ahmed who is a Harvard professor and Fatah Mernesi was a Moroccan feminist. Now, both of them, they're writers and they've studied the subject of women in Islam, but they're not Islamic scholars. And so are you finding that there are people like that, you know, there's the example of Samina Ali as well, who, again, she isn't a, she's not an Islamic scholar at all. She's just a writer and has a, um, she's part of a feminist organization in, in US. And so, but there's a very famous video of hers where she has convinced so many Muslim women that, um, you, that you don't need to wear hijab. So are you finding that that is also adding to the confusion? Yeah, absolutely. I think they, uh, there are so many women who cite these resources as applications for why uh, hijab is not mandatory. Um, I think this is a greater problem of how Islam is spoken about in the public sphere that uh, instead of it being ulama who are, you know, religion specialists, right? They are the experts in this field. Um, instead of them leading the conversation on what Islam is and is not, or what are Islamic injunctions or what are requirements of faith, it's really these people who have a very academic background, 
who may have studied the sociology or the anthropology or the history of Islam. Um, those are important fields, of course, but they are not qualified to speak on the Islamic sciences. And the problem is that they do speak very um, intelligently about these topics, right? That, you know, to the, um, you know, to the average eye, if you will, to someone who isn't well-versed in these topics, they seem to be experts, right? They can quote the Quran with ease, they can mention a few hadiths, they can, you know, make these references to what we think are explicitly religious texts. And so we take them as experts on the religion, um, and they're not that. Uh, and this is something that's super, super dangerous, not just related to hijab, but mm-hmm. in all matters of, of being. Um, and so I think like this is something that we need to be wary of, right? Of who we learn from, where we take knowledge, what does it mean for something to be true? What type of appeals are they making? Mm-hmm. I'm going to just mention this. So the, the two very clear evidences in the Quran where Allah does tell us, tell women to, you know, to wear the uh, himar, the head cover is Surah Nur, which is Surah 24, Ayah 31. And then in um, Surah um, Al-Azab, um, which mentions the outer garment. And in, um, in another section of this podcast, I will, um, we will discuss, um, I have a recording of, um, some scholars who do discuss that so inshallah that will be part of this podcast but so then for if so if we shouldn't go to whether it's a uh, muslim youtuber or a you know um ac- you know academics or muslim feminists this is they call themselves muslim feminists it's not something i'm, I'm labeling them as so how c- can a muslim woman and who go, who should we go to and how do we access someone to find out our answers when you know to like you said not just hijab anything right i think the most important thing to look for when you are trying to learn about your religion is um whether that individual has a chain that connects them back to the prophet so um our tradition uh the way we transmit knowledge is heart to heart right we have this in this nag uh, a chain of transmission, right? Where um, a teacher teaches a student who goes on and teaches their students and so on and so forth, mm-hmm. all the way back to Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And if they don't have that type of rigorous connection, um, you know, verifiable connection um, and spiritual connection back to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, we should not be learning about the religion from them. Um, and that's, again, one of the biggest tragedies in our day is that, um, you know, everyone feels qualified to speak about things that they are not qualified to speak about. And God forgive me, you know, if I'm doing so right now. Um, but we don't do that with any other field. You know, we wouldn't do that with um, medicine, for example, we wouldn't learn about um, coronavirus from a plumber, mm. you know, of what he thinks about the the pathophysiology of the disease. But we do do that with Islam, um, and it's it's so tragic because Islam um, or religion in general doesn't just have consequences for us in this world, but in the next as well. You know, it's a salvational affair. It, it's so so deeply important is the connection that we have with god and so we need to make sure that we're looking for uh traditionally classically trained ulama um you know who have that type of rigorous training just to give like a specific example someone that i think 
is really wonderful in this regard. Uh, in the U.S., uh, we have a sheikha named Aisha Prime. Um, you know, she is an American Muslim, right? Like, she gets the context in the West. She's been classically mm -hmm. trained. And of course, like, because she's a woman, she can relate to some of the unique struggles that women may face. Um, so if someone is looking for, like, a specific example of who to learn from, I would definitely recommend that they, you know, watch her YouTube videos or, you know, uh, look out for some of her work. Mm -hmm. Okay, alhamdulillah, because I think this is it. There are people um, who we can turn to, um, but it, it's the, um, for some reason, whether it's instant gratification or we have no patience anymore, it's, it, it does seem odd that we are going to YouTube to get an answer about that could affect whether we go to Jannah or Jahannam. I think that's what we need to understand it in that way, that this is, like you said, it's not something light it's going to affect our akhirah so we should right. you know inshallah we need to give it that importance and that seriousness yeah um, i mean it's a it's a worthy investment to make mm. i think um it's really nice that we have these like really beautiful uh, well-produced like two three minute youtube videos that you know give you that spiritual pick me up or we have the um, there's Juma Khutbah that, you know, talks about one or two um, hadiths and you feel that like spiritual upliftment, that's important and that has its place. But at the same time, like, are we sitting down every day and learning something more about God? You know, because if we're not progressing forward in our relationship with him, then we're going backwards. You can't stay neutral. You don't stay in the same place. Um, and so we really, and this is a self-assessment you have to do. You have to really reflect on whether you're putting the time in um, and going through a text with the teacher, uh, going through a course properly. Yeah, yeah, alhamdulillah. And uh, I think nowadays, especially the, with the online, you know, Islamic courses, it's there now, alhamdulillah. It's actually it's so brilliant. Like I'm doing one at the moment. And so it's out there, inshallah, we just need to make the intention and, and make an effort. And if we need to spend our money on this, then that's the best thing to spend our money on, um, inshallah. Um, so now, now another thing that I've heard, and you mentioned it in your article, was that, um, okay, so let's say someone does agree that, yes, uh, wearing um, the khimar is an obligation. But then what comes next is people say, but Allah says in the Quran, there's no compulsion in religion. That's Surah 2, Ayah 256. So, um, and that's used as a justification that, to choose i can choose if i do this or not what would you what would you say about that yeah i think again um you know we would never apply that type of logic to anything other than religion you know we would never say that i can choose which uh prescription medications to take if i have yes. a certain <laughs> ailment right you would listen to the doctor you would listen to what uh, she said is the best plan of action for your health. Um, and so we need to do the same when it comes to our deen, right? What the ulama have said, not just right now, but for 1400 years of our scholarship that um, hijab is a requirement. We need to listen to that and we need to have that type of intellectual humility to kind of yield to their expertise. And unfortunately, like we don't have that right now as we have um, a very arrogant do-it-yourself make it yourself version of religion where I can pick up the Quran, not even read it in the classic, classical Arabic text, read like a English translation, um, pick out random verses and create my own religion, read a few hadiths and say, look, uh, I've, I've found these justifications and now I know what I need to do. Um, 
like, come on, we know that's not mm. the right approach to take towards our religion. Um, and so we need that type of humility again. And that comes from, again, learning from those who are experts, learning from the ulama. Um, it's, it's really tragic that we feel as if uh, we have those like critical thinking skills or those like critical reasoning skills to apply uh, to the religion that um, particularly for those who are in university or might have graduated from university, you learn how to analyze texts, right? You learn how to read a book, how to explore the themes, how to um, make connections between characters and uh, ideas. Um, and that's really important and that has its place, but we shouldn't assume that that qualifies us to do uh, the same with the Quran, especially if we are not even reading it in the actual uh, language it was revealed in. Um, but even if we can read it in classical Arabic, that doesn't mean that we have uh, command over the sirah, for example, uh, or the life of the Prophet or that we have command over fiqh or aqidah or any of these other Islamic sciences. Um, and so really until we take the time to go through them, become masters of those uh, specific fields, we really should not feel qualified to make any type of um, prescriptions or uh, conclusions on matters of being. Mm, yeah, I, I completely agree. And, it, it, and we have to be honest about that, that we, we aren't, we are in, we're not in a position. And it's interesting if someone said to me, you know, like if, if you know you're not qualified to do something, can someone offered you a job or there was this, a responsibility, uh, you would say, no, sorry, I can't do that. So we need mm -hmm. to say that here as well. I think that right. uh, it, just have like be humble enough and and it's a bit of a reality check. It's I think the way that things are, um, I think it, we, it's very quick to we just get caught up in this. Um, everyone's very quick to give a judgment about Islam, you know, about the Quran and Hadith, and yeah, it's it's quite puzzling and we, we just need to re stop ourselves from doing that. Even if other people are doing it, doesn't mean we have to jump in. Um, right. Because now the and other... I, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, sorry, go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, I was just going to then move on to, to a, the, the other um, justification that I've heard a, um, a number of times is that, um, and this is something I hear a, a lot from women in particular, that... Um, the idea of speaking my truth. Um, so for example, so there's now, it seems to be this idea that um, where, okay, I, my experience is my truth. And so my hijab experience is my experience and you can't tell, it makes me happy the way I'm wearing it. And therefore, mm -hmm. um, you know, please like, please back off. Don't, don't, don't preach or don't tell me um, what I should be doing or what I shouldn't. Right. Um, yeah, please to refrain. <laughs> yeah. So now it's again. This is this is used as a what well, event? It's like a way to cut off the conversation. That, no, sorry, we're not talking about this. I'm not going to wear it, and it doesn't matter what you say to me. I, it's like I don't even want to listen to what you're going to say to me. Yeah, I think this uh, relates really well to the previous question. You know, is how we view Islam as being a very individualistic affair. Um, which it is not, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala defines each one of us by the relationships we have with others, the responsibilities that we owe them, you know, that we have to them, um, and the rights that, you know, 
they need to fulfill for us. Um, and so when we view ourselves as this like communal structure, right, as a community, not as just like the sum total of individuals, um, it really begins to challenge some of these ideas of uh, my body, my choice, like I'm going to speak my own truth and you can't say anything about it because we realize that your truth has an impact on my life, right? Um, and if each of us are just shouting our own truths at all times, um, it, could create, it creates this cacophony of voices where uh, truth itself has no value anymore. And this is kind of what we're seeing in the postmodern condition, right, is um, everyone makes different truth claims all the time. Um, each of them have their own, uh, you know, justifications or their own qualifications of why their truth is the best. And then at the end of the day, no one really knows what truth is. To give a very simple example of that, it's as if, because this is the Muslim mom podcast, um, it's as if every mom said, my child is the best, you know, yes. and anytime <laughs> any other mom said, well, my child is the best. You just said, no, shut up. Like my child is yeah. the best. And you have your own qualifications of what makes your child the best. Well, she can color really well and he can ride his bike really well. And that's why, you know, my child is the best. And in the end of the day, like it means nothing with a mom says that anymore. Like it makes her feel really good. Um, but we know like that's just mom, something moms say, you know, it doesn't mean if we were to actually rank all the children of the world, this child would come out you know, to be the best. So I think it's similar in this way of like everyone making their own claims of truth that this is my truth. Um, in the end, it means nothing. And I think this is why it's so important for us to learn our Islamic sciences is because they don't just teach us, um, you know, things like fiqh and aqidah, but they teach us how to determine what is true. So for example, um, in the hadith sciences, you learn how to evaluate um, whether a reported saying of the Prophet is actually authentic, right? Uh, what mm -hmm. are some ways that we explore that? Um, what was the context? Who narrated it? You know, what's the chain of transmission? And then you kind of determine, okay, is this a truthful saying, if you will? Is this an authentic saying? And that extends outside of just uh, hadith to, you know, even the secular world, if you will, even to things that non-Muslims say, um, if they make this claim, if they narrate something, is that true, right? And then how do we authenticate that? Um, so these are skills that we learn through our theme that we apply to everything, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because at the end of the day, like, um, all of the universe is God's creation. So, mm -hmm. you know, what we learn about him, we can apply to everything. Um, and so it's, we need to be really, really, uh, wary of this idea of everyone speaking their own truth. It's not an individualistic world. It's not that, um, you know, in this hierarchy of truth, your experiences don't supersede everything else. And I think that's so uncomfortable for us to realize because we want to believe we're the center of the world. And I think yes. this is one of the biggest flaws of liberalism is that it convinces us that our needs and our desires and our choices are at the top of the pyramid and everyone else exists only to fulfill them. And that's simply not true. You know, we have responsibilities to other people. They have rights over us. Um, and we need to recognize the relationships we have within the community. We need to recognize that, you know, if a very popular uh, influencer is saying things like, I'm speaking my truth, 
um, that doesn't just impact her life, that impacts the millions of people who follow her and how they begin to understand Islam uh, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so, again, like I think it's so, so important for us to learn our religion properly and remember that look, as, as bad as it feels to hear, like you're not the center of the world, your experiences are not the most meaningful thing. Um, there are an abundance, like billions of other people out there and we have obligations to them and to Al-Spanathal, of course. Yeah, that, um, I know, I think individualism is a real problem. Um, and the, yeah, this kind of very secular and then very individualistic view of Islam is, is so alien. It's, completely the opposite to the idea of you know community and wanting for your sister what you want for yourself because really even the whole reason why we're having this discussion is not because we think we are superior it's more um the way i see this and, and i know you do as well is that taking the lesson from you know surah asr that you know we every muslim every person will be at loss except those who believe who do good deeds and then who advise each other with sabr and with the truth we have to do that if we don't do that um then we will be at loss and so right. um inshallah yeah that's i think again i, I hope that um you know we'll, that's coming across in in the way that we're discussing it that at no point do we feel um we are superior to any other muslim sister whether she's wearing hijab or she's wants to wear hijab inshallah um, yeah, absolutely. But, um, and I just yeah. want to add on this note, like, I am not a scholar, right? I'm not even like some type of advanced student of knowledge. I'm a very like mediocre average Muslim who is just sharing some reflections on what I'm observing. And I'm only doing this from a place of, you know, when I watched uh, the video that came out earlier this week, and when I'm just observing things that are happening in society, it's not from a place of, um, or like a vindictive place, right? Or a place of superiority, like, haha, like I managed to keep my hijab on and look at what x y and z is doing like absolutely not it comes from a place of sorrow you know mm -hmm. of like what's what's happening to us like when i have kids inshallah one day like what will happen to them like we need to recognize the urgency of these problems because um like god protect me from this but mm -hmm. if i were to ever go down a specific route would there be people to look out for me to mm. kind of say iman like this is what's going on you need to be aware of this and kind of support me with empathy and bring me back to the straight path and so you know i don't say anything that i do from a place of um inshallah from a place of superiority like may god protect us from that mm -hmm. it's really just wanting to be better because we're all like this family, you know, like we have yes. to look out for each other. Mm -hmm. And if we don't do that, no one else will, you know? Yeah. That's right. Because now then this really, this is exactly the thing that we are one family, we are one ummah. And if we look to our past, what, like this problem, um, it's interesting, this is not a modern day problem that we've, as Muslim women, we've, um, our, uh, our understanding of uh, the obligation of hijab, it's, um, uh it, it you know for a long time there um it was never a problem if we look to our history only until um western nations colonized came into our countries and colonized us and again i would encourage everyone to read i'm going to say a few names and you know um please google them to to do your own research but i'm going to give one a very clear blatant example of when britain occupied egypt 
the um, first controller general is what an interesting name, controller general in Egypt. His <laughs> name was, you know, I, I think what a weird name. Now they've changed it to ambassador. When I looked up, doesn't that word doesn't exist now? They've changed it to ambassadors. Um, so now the ambassador, the, the first controller general in Egypt from 1878 to 1879 was a man called Lord Cromer, and um, he had he wrote books about his attitudes about towards. Um, uh, Egyptian, the Muslims um, and the Egyptian women in particular, and he he argued that um, basically the way that women are treated um, is basically he said certain things like okay, so Cromer argued that Westernized Christianity elevated the status of women, while Islam taught that women should be degraded through the veil and segregation based on gender. So he had a very clear he had a real problem with Islam. Mm-hmm. He had a problem with that the fact that women wore hijab and you think again and and so what he uh um he had a very clear agenda to get women in egypt to remove their veil now the best way to do that is if you can undermine a person a person's understanding of their religion like forcibly trying to take it off would have had the opposite effect so then what he did was that he encouraged and influenced there was there's a very famous book written by Qasim Amin. He was an Egyptian um, jurist who'd studied in Europe and he was a reformer. He, he a self-proclaimed reformer of Islam. And he wrote a book called The Liberation of Women in which he blamed Egyptians, Egyptian women's veiling, their lack of education and their slavery um, to, to Egyptian, to Islam. And so he, so Qasim Amin was influenced by Lord Cromer and so he writes this book and then this book is, you know, uh, written, read by the elites and the educated people in um, Egypt. And they started to take these ideas on board. And then, and so what you had was that then people started thinking, yeah, maybe, actually, yeah, is hijab causing us to be backward if we became more like the West and look at the way their women are there. They mix freely with men. They don't cover, you know, that. And so they then started to question the Islamic rules. And that had a knock-on effect on, so, you know, the understanding of the family and then that, you know, and in Islam, the family is so important. So the mother being there for the family, taking care of the family. If you take women out of the family and put her into work and into study and, um, and you've told her that the problem is, the thing that's keeping you back is Islam, then for, uh, you know, for the British in particular in Egypt, it was then a way they had changed the, the whole way. Um, instead of the Egyptians hating the occupation, you now had people who loved their occupiers. And you see they did that in a number of countries. Um, mm-hmm. And just then um, moving on, there's a, a, a very famous Egyptian feminist called Huda Sharawi. Now, what she did was um, in 1922, she did a public unveiling of herself. And she did this after returning from the International Women's Suffrage Alliance Conference in Rome. And that was a feminist conference. And again, what we see there is that Muslim uh, people and in the elites mainly them being influenced very clearly by non-Muslim ideas that after mixing with non-Muslims, they got influenced. Um, and so, and then, you, you know, you could, we could look at other countries with quite a similar pattern. But the thing that we see here is that Muslims didn't have a problem at all. You know, it wasn't even an issue. Sometimes people say, why do we keep talking about hijab? Why are we obsessed with it? Now, the thing is, we are not. But 
we can't um if people are going to so back then in in egypt the muslims didn't have i'm, I'm sure they weren't no that's that's not right of me to say that were they able to counteract this you know this um onslaught and this attack against hijab now that unfortunately they weren't able to and what happened was they the religious you know the kind of uneducated muslims you know and that's not a derogatory term but the ones who what they did they just became quite conservative and they thought no we need to like keep our women at home even more to protect them from this mm -hmm. uh, and that wasn't the best thing to do what we need what we really need to do is understand is to uh, understand okay if lord as an example lord cloma he was doing this in egypt but at the same time he was the head of the anti-suffrage movement in england um, and he was against women in Britain getting the vote. And what right. we, yeah, and so, so it, was, it was complete hypocrisy. And what we can see yeah. is he wasn't actually a feminist at all. He didn't care about the Egyptian women and their liberation. He just realized, I can use these liberal ideas to, um, to, to help the occupation that we are doing in Britain. It justifies the occupation. And, um, and I think so it's worth understanding the history behind where we are today because yes. it, you know because do you because what i'm thinking that that was the in the past that was like the really blatant you know attack on hijab um but do you think that that still happens now but in a more subtle way absolutely i think this idea of like divide and conquer is something that the british uh excelled at they you know, perfected it and it's utilized all over the world now. So this idea of like dividing um, men against women and convincing, um, you know, these like Muslim countries, particularly Muslim women, that it's Muslim men who are oppressing them, that um, it's the men who are forcing you to veil yourselves and seclude yourselves uh, from the sight of society um, and you need to rebel against them and you need to agitate for your rights and you need to take off your veil you know um, this is a technique that has been you know used all over the world um, by colonizers and then even in recent history we see how the U.S., um, one of the justifications for invading Afghanistan um, was this uh, manufactured sob story about how you know Afghan women are being oppressed um, that we need to go liberate them and we need to save them and that's why uh, you know the military the US military needs to invade the country um, mm -hmm. and completely decimate it of course like look at look at the state of Afghanistan now um, after more than a decade uh, US occupation has not improved the condition of that country it's only made it worse um, and so we see how women are used as tokens in this way for greater aims, you know, whether that's political uh, pursuit of power, whether that's financial uh, ambitions that these colonizers or imperialists have, um, you know, whether it's just a desire to advance their own philosophies and ideologies about the world. Um, we need to recognize whether women are being used as tokens in this way, especially when that type of tokenism is dressed in the garb of feminism. Because on the surface, it seems as if women are being empowered, um, but actually we're just being reduced uh, you know, into objects. We're just being used, you know? Mm. Uh, and I think this is 
again, this is not just something that we see in politics or on a major like nation state level, but this is in a very insidious way what we see with, um, you know, to bring it back to influencers, like what we see with them as well is uh, how they kind of think about success, what they view as success or a thriving um, uh, job or career, uh, whether that really empowers women or whether it just reduces us into our bodies again. You know, like have we really progressed from being seen as just mere objects for male pleasure um, or when we post these like beautifully photoshopped selfies um, with specific contours of our body on display. Um, you know, are we really being liberated from the male gaze? Are we really um, being respected as, you know, uh, you know, divine creations? You know, is our sanctity being appreciated in this way? Um, and I have to say no, you know, like I really don't think that we are being empowered through these types of actions, I think we are falling into the same type of capitalistic um, view uh, that popular society has about women where we are just our bodies and we just extract uh, financial gain or worldly success from, from using our bodies in this way. And it's really unfortunate, you know, because our bodies are an amana. And this is what mm -hmm. I write about in the article is that it's a trust from Olas Panathala that he he gave us these physical forms, not so we display them and parade them, particularly for the gaze of people who don't even know us or like us, you know, but just for his worship. That's what we're here for. Um, so we need to return to that type of God consciousness again. And this is true for both men and women, you know, women who may display their form and men who may view the form. Um, that is a violation of the amana as well as when Muslim men look at women they should not be looking at and engage with influencers or, you know, any woman in that way. Mm, yeah, that's, that's, that's really good advice. And I, and I think that, um, I think that, yeah, we can, that, I think there are things that, um we can do like for example one of the th you know that um we should think very carefully about the culture that we are consuming where you know any any popular culture whether it's on um uh if it is if you know if we we choose who we follow so if there were you know so we shouldn't follow if we have a if we don't like it when the um uh you know muslim influencers do certain things you know, then we shouldn't follow them. They only exist because, um, partly, I know there's also, you know, everyone can buy fake followers, so that's, an, <laughs> and you can buy views. So there's definitely that going on, but, um, we shouldn't consume that. We sh if we, if they don't have a platform that we're consuming them on, then, you know, like we just, we, and even about our own mental health and our own view of, um, understanding for some, we should not follow people who are going to make us, who are not going to bring us closer to Allah. I think that's one of the things I've now started to do, that I've, I've removed anyone who doesn't make me uh, more God conscious. I don't want to see their videos. I don't want to see their pictures. Um, right. What advice, what else do you think we could do to, um, about this, you know, uh, about, in, you know, what we've spoken about, what could we practically do? Um, yeah, so I think in general, like curating your consumption is really important. So uh, anything you view through your eyes or basically anything you consume through your five senses, you should be very deliberate about because that has tangible impact, not just on this world, but the next. Um, and it's not always 
just about your relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but also your relationship with yourself. So if you're constantly viewing um, these Instagram personalities who have, let's say, for example, a small nose, right? And this is something that is really oh, prominent okay. in our community, right? Yeah. You'll want a small nose and you'll yes. begin to kind of question your self-beauty and your worth and your et cetera, et cetera. So it's not always just about you know, religion or Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, although that is the most important thing to be wary of, it's also how you view yourself and how you view this mana he's given you. He made you in the best form, right? Mm. He knew better. So being conscious of that, and this is something that, you know, that you are influenced by not just Muslim personalities, but non-Muslim ones as well. Um, so I, I would say like being conscious of what you're seeing through your eyes, what you're listening to, the type of music, the type of TV shows, um, the books you're reading, like being really, really deliberate about all of those things is important. Um, and then, of course, like connecting with Islam in a really authentic, traditional way. So like taking the time to really learn, um, spending time in the company of people who are um, maybe further down this path uh, towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala than you, you know, who may have more knowledge, just sitting in their company is so important, even if it's not um, specifically to learn um, something, just hanging out with them is really important because at least you'll save yourself from things like backbiting or, um, you know, definitely things like shirk, but um, even like small sins that we kind of think are not that important, but really are, um, you know, just being in their company that'll protect you. And I think things like mentorship are so important in that regard of like making sure that particularly young Muslim women, but now increasingly even older Muslim women, yeah. um, identifying people who really celebrate their faith and have, you know, have accomplished something um, because of their faith and not in despite mm. of it, you know, mm -hmm. um, people who recognize how Allah has opened doors for them. Um, you know, reaching out to them and learning from them and being there for one another. <clears throat> Sorry, my voice. Oh, no, um, we have, yeah, wow, we've been speaking for quite a long time, Alhamdulillah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I was just, well, one last thing I was going to, what you were just saying that I think also we need to, I think we have to be very careful what we share, as in, especially mm -hmm. when it comes to Islamic knowledge. Uh, so for, like, I'll give you an example. Someone, Alhamdulillah, they, they actually, I'm happy they sent it to me because it's helped me with my, uh, when I was researching this topic that it was an article in the Huffington Post and it was Huffington Post CA, so that's a Canadian one. And it had in the title, now this is again, this is uh, the, uh, we need to be very careful who we gain Islamic knowledge from. The title said, Muslim scholars who um, say um, the hijab is not an obligation. It was something like that, but it was quite a very clear title that here are Muslim scholars who say hijab is not an obligation. Then, and then the way it was written was very well written. The name of the journalist was, so it was Huffington Post. So you think, oh, that's credible. The name of the author was, um, the writer was Muslim. And then it had um, five or six different names. Now, when I checked each one, I'll be honest, every single one was dubious. Um, mm -hmm. As in, I couldn't find their, who, again, like you said, where did they study? Where's their Islamic studies from? or it was very vague um, when, or you couldn't find, I couldn't find links to where they, where they had come from. And then in every paragraph, there was no evidence. There was no ayah, no hadith, no, who is the tafsir, whose tafsir are they basing it on? They, some said Muslim mystics, some just used some words, but it was written as if this is fact and this is the truth. Right. 
And then when I Googled the author, he's, he's co-authored a book on um, basically Islam and how Islam uh, on the topic of um, same-sex marriages and how it's permissible and how it should be permissible. Mm-hmm. So then, um, and then I looked at the other articles you wrote, which were all relating to LGBT, not all of them, a majority. So now, um, but if you just, if you just read the article, you would believe what they said that, yeah, there are valid opinions that, and there are scholars, there are scholars, Islamic scholars who've done this. So now, so what I guess what I'm saying is that we need to check thoroughly the sort, who the writers are, what the sources are, and then we shouldn't share that information with uh, those links with pe- you know, those articles mm-hmm. until we check, you know, because yeah. that will just add to the confusion. Um, and that's, yeah, you know, this that's is the what- era of fake news, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> we need yes. to be really aware of that, especially like if you live in the US, you have Trump as your president, you know how big of a problem fake news is and all mm-hmm. over the world, you know, people know that you know, those WhatsApp forwards you get from aunties are are not like some factual, they're not like factual uh, statements, right? Like we are discerning when it comes to uh, Auntie Shagufta and the community sending us the cure for coronavirus, but we're not discerning when it's, you know, Ahmad XYZ writing a beautiful paper in the Huffington Post, Mm. but we need to be, right? We need to realize everyone has an agenda Everyone has a specific philosophy they're trying to forward um, or promote to people. And so we need to be discerning in that as well. Mm-hmm. Yes, alhamdulillah. Well, jazakallah khair, Iman. Um, so you can all read the article on uh, traversing tradition. I would definitely, we didn't actually cover all the points in there. So mm-hmm. it's de- that is one article, inshallah, that I would recommend to forward to your friends and family. Um, um, inshallah, yeah, inshallah, Iman, you must come on again, you know, because uh, I'm sure. I would that, love to. Yeah, this, we could speak about. Uh, but inshallah, take care. And um, again, you know, Jazakallah has so much for taking the time to come on. Thank you, Waiki. It was my pleasure. This episode is brought to you by farhatamin.com, a website that specializes in Islamic stickers, Muslim activity books, as well as Ramadan and e-decorations. Wholesale and reseller inquiries are also welcome. So visit farhatamin.com today.